Hey everyone, uh, welcome to another episode of Off the Pulpit. Today, I have another special guest. We have with us Pastor Duke Quant. Uh, pastor Duke is the lead pastor of Grace Meridian Hill, which is in Washington, D.C., correct, Duke? That's right. All right, well, first off, Duke, thanks for thanks for being with us and coming on. Man, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate of, it. Of course. So I, generally, we want to talk about um, your book that you co-authored with Gregory Thompson, Reparations. Yeah. Um, but from there, we'll see where it goes. Maybe talk some Lakers, um, the church, whatever it may be. But I, to kick it off, um, I think reparations, uh, my question was like how you got around to writing that, especially as a Korean American pastor right. um, in the East Coast. I'm always, I always find that really interesting. So maybe some background will be helpful for our listeners to get the conversation going. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, p- people are curious about that often, you know, like how, do you, how does one come around even to tackling that, that subject? And to be clear, it, it's not like I was born thinking about reparations, you know, or, or anything like that. I mean, I grew up in SoCal, um, you know, out in the desert, uh, up in Victorville. Um, and so I had, had a bit of racial cultural diversity uh, surrounding me. But just as a Korean American, of course, it meant sort of spanning two different worlds, if not more, right? And sort of negotiating identity and being aware that the world isn't the way that it maybe is at home, right? Yeah. That kind of thing. And so I think there was a, a sense of racial identity awareness early on in life um, that really, is, I think, set the stage for some of this stuff, right? Just asking big questions and curiosity around the Black American experience, especially. So fast forward, um, you know, it, it, it was really upon coming to D.C., which is a historically Black city, and um as a pastor and then also a church planter eventually around 2010, just asking a lot of questions around trying to understand uh, the lives, the histories and the families of my neighbors. Right. So it's sort of this personal endeavor of like, well, what, what's, what's on their hearts, what's on their minds and, and that sort of thing. And then together with that, as a pastor, just wanting to learn how to love and serve and connect and, and, and build community together. So, um, I think that just led me into all these kinds of questions around what does it look like to build a cross-cultural community, mm. right? Interracial crossing barriers um, as the gospel gives us power to do. But then starting to realize there's just this whole different perspective around race relations, quote unquote, whole different angle to what we need to do to move forward as a general public in terms of America, but also in the church. Like, what do we need to do? And just realizing that the answers that are supplied by non-Black folks and the answers supplied by Black folks is just so different. Mm -hmm. And um, long story short, and I'll pause here, but just to say uh, the more I read um, into how African-Americans thought about our racial divide, our racial brokenness, our racial evils, our racial... Uh, the prospect of racial healing, the more I understood how much reparations has always been a part of the conversation. And this topic is is significant and and not just uh, for African-Americans in general, but also African-American Christians. Mm-hmm. This is an old idea, an old conversation. For the rest of us, it feels new simply mm-hmm. because of the very divides that we're seeking to heal. And so um, just noticing that, I think, helped me to start asking questions around, hey, what do we need to do? How do we need to explore this? What do we need to learn and understand that our sisters and brothers have long understood that the rest of us um, haven't or don't? And so uh, started doing some studying, reading, both in scripture and um, in uh, Black intellectual thought as well. Was it uncomfortable at any point writing that material? Because I know like Asians, we tend to be all about harmony. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want tension. And even with like political issues, Asians have been very silent about that for such a long time. And so, you know, here you are, I know you're not the first per se, but you're writing about a topic that could cause a lot of eyebrows to be raised. You're rocking the boat. You're talking about issues that Asians don't really talk about too much. Probably not many voices you can even relate to about this topic who are Asians as well. Like, how did it feel in that process? Was it discomfort? Was it pushback discomfort? Like how, I'm curious about what your thoughts were. That's a good question, man. I, I would say, you know, by the time the actual writing of the book came around, I think I'd made peace with what this was going to entail, right? Mm. I mean, I knew, I mean, literally I had to think through. Like you knew De Young was going to write a response to you. <laughs> well, I knew either him or somebody like, right? I mean, <laughs> I knew this was not going to be well received by many. 
And that's part of just the sober calculus of the whole thing, right? And what I like to repeat and again and again for folks and repeat to myself in the face of frustration is racial justice has always been a remnant movement in the American church. It's never been popular. Never, 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 never. And it never will be. So uh, why would we expect differently right? in this point of history, uh, different from other points of of, of history, but um, but as an Asian American specifically, yeah, it was a, a weird position to be in, and um, it, it's interesting because, um, let me say this: in order to pursue clarity of argument, I almost found myself having to downplay my personal location in that conversation, hmm. right? Because even as the book sort of positions or or sort of navigates the conversation it presents it mostly as a black and white kind of ordeal which it is significantly historically but when it comes to well where's my personal role in this or where are other communities of color or sub communities within white america or the white church or other churches that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. And I did have a concern in writing. I think I had maybe one or two sentences where I, I at least made a nod towards being Korean American mm-hmm. and made sure to explicitly name that. But there was definitely a sense in which I was like, look, there's a lot to go into that we don't got the space to go into or that I thought would muddle a bit of the argument. Maybe the argument could be made that uh, that would have actually brought in some subtleties and nuance that would have aided the conversation. That's why, you know, dialogue like this is really cool, really helpful to further the conversation. Um, But yeah, I almost had to sort of pull back a little bit and let it Hmm. sort of play out as a mostly black and white thing, even at risk of my own place in it getting a little confused, Mm -hmm. right? Am I identifying more with African-Americans? Am I identifying more as a a person of color? Am I identifying more with white Americans as a non-black person in the reparations conversation? So complicated, right? Confused. But then on top of that, as you're saying, most Asian Americans, well, that might not be fair to say, but generally our cultural posture in public matters in general, let alone in regards to race matters, isn't that of being outspoken or rabble rousing or right. I mean, so that's not really how we go about this. I think that shifted a little bit, maybe since Mm -hmm. Atlanta, I think, you know, there's a little bit more Mm -hmm. outspokenness and standing tall. Uh, nowadays than there were even a few years ago. Uh, but Asian Americans generally are new to self-articulation and self-advocacy when it comes to racial matters. And we can talk about mm-hmm. that some more. Um, but that also introduced, I think, an awkward sort of like, where do we fit? Where do I fit into all of this kind of dimension? Could you actually briefly, very like very briefly, like, summarize like mm-hmm. what you were saying in that book? I think a lot of us are familiar with uh, racism and you know, the fight against that. But you, your book is called Reparation. And that yeah. might be a term that a lot of people aren't as familiar with, especially in the Christian yeah. circles. So maybe very briefly, just for our listeners, if you could define like what you were trying to say in that book. Yeah. So reparations is a word. Um, it, it has a lot of baggage and a lot of misunderstandings uh, built around it. It simply is based on the root idea of repair. Uh, so the idea there is how can we not just move on from or not just acknowledge or even confess racial wrongs that have been done, but rather how can we actually repair them, undo the harms of racial evils, sins uh, that have been committed specifically against African-Americans. And so we are focusing the the, uh, horizon of our book around uh, the plight of African-Americans in this country. The logic of the book simply is this, that um, the nature of racism in this country is rightly described as um, that of white supremacy Um, And we can unpack that term if you'd like me to, Um, but that there is a system, indeed a culture that tends to elevate and privilege uh, those that are designated as white and conferring different advantages and benefits to them, um, all the while taking away from those who are designated not white um, and more specifically historically, especially those designated black. Um, the nature of white supremacy, its enduring social effect 
is rightly described as theft. So racism, white supremacy is not just about hurt feelings. Uh, it's not just about uh, pushing people to the side. Rather, there's a, a real sense in which things are sinfully taken away from people. And we talk about how there, therefore we can rightly trace throughout history uh, different forms of theft. This is a multi-generational, multi-dimensional theft, mass theft that has occurred um, in America. Uh, and we categorize that in, in three ways, the theft of truth, the theft of power, and the theft of wealth. And so these things have been stolen from African-American brothers and sisters. And so when we go to scripture and we ask the Bible, what do we do in the face of theft? Um, what is the right, righteous response to sins of theft, whether individual and corp or corporate? And the answer that the Bible gives is not simply saying you're sorry, confession, apology, but rather, yes, that, and also what the Bible calls restitution. Uh, that is giving back what was stolen. Even if you feel sorry, even if you've confessed your guilt, it doesn't end there. You need to return that which was sinfully taken away. And that's the core uh, sort of moral logic um, underneath reparations, animating reparations, and that is uh, that if things actually have been stolen from African-Americans, then we collectively need to do our part in giving those things back in returning them to African-Americans. So um, what we identify in the book, though, more specifically, is that um, this is not just a general national sin or not just a problem uh, that the federal government is responsible for, uh, for example, or even just individual perpetrators of these thefts. But rather, if we trace history carefully and humbly, what we'll notice is that the Christian church in America throughout history um, has been complicit in, has been a negligent bystander in the face of these thefts, mm. and at times have even been active perpetrators, again, corporately, in the face of these thefts. And so um, our basic argument is that the Christian church and Christians in general have some significant responsibility to see that these wrongs are actually restored, repaired, these thefts are actually uh, built back into the lives of African-Americans, uh, that reparations is a responsibility of the Christian church in America. That's why you're getting in trouble for that. Right <laughs> <laughs> it, it's like from that one, one quick question I have is this, yeah, yeah, know, yeah. even you saying that in 2023, like yeah. even people listening right now, right. plus some might've logged off our pod and Hey, yeah. more power to you. Right. If you did yeah. one, one question I have is like, I'm sure you were aware this is going to cause pushback. As you mentioned, what's been the most surprising either positive or negative feedback that you've heard? Because it's been, I think, at least two years since the book's been out. So I'm sure you've heard the whole gamut. You've had DeYoung's response that kind of was famous and your uh, response as well on TGC and all that. But I guess for you, like as an author, what's been the most surprising feedback you've heard, uh, especially from the church? I'm curious. Yeah, um, that's a great question. I mean, there's been a lot of positive response. Let me be mm -hmm. clear about that. A lot of people that are saying, hey, what do we do? Uh, you know, churches both here in our city in D.C. that are actively studying, reading, praying over their church's corporate action and what they want to do um, in this local community um, and different communities across the country as well. And so positive response for sure. I wouldn't say that that's a surprise, but that has been refreshing, mm. right? Just... Um, and again, not because people are responding to what we're saying, but because we're simply trying to lay plain what we think the Bible says, what yeah. history tells us and what the Bible says. I mean, we've always sort of said the the sort of logic of our book, the argument is actually pretty simple. I mean, I try to summarize it in just a couple minutes there. It's not that complicated. Um, it's just whether or not one agrees with it. Um, in terms of pushback, surprising, I, I would say... Um, I, I, I'm not surprised by people's unwillingness even to consider okay. the arguments, but I would say it is discouraging how much people aren't even willing to give it a chance, right? Mm -hmm. These are professing Christians. These are people that, you know, are 
all about the word of God, apparently. And yet when it comes to pulling apart these actions, there's such an obtuseness or an unwillingness even to work through things, you know, sort of that defensive posture. And look, humbly, we all do that around things we don't like or that things that we don't want to receive. Um, so I get that. I see that. But it, it has been just a stunning sight to see again. Um, it, 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 no matter how clearly something can be presented, mm. uh, it, it's not for lack of clarity of argument. It's not for lack of information. It's not for lack of facts being presented. It's just simply an unwillingness. And I would say maybe um, the degree of defensiveness, which of course I've known, we've known, um, but the degree to which the immediate reaction is you hate white people or how dare you say this about white people. And it's like, actually, I'm not even mainly thinking about white people mm. <laughs> I'm like, i mean it just that that itself in terms of what the focus of our attention and energy and heart and will ought to be we're like we're just we're trying to talk about black folks and we're that's our main and somehow the conversation always comes back to well what are you saying about white and it's like i'm not even like ah mm. and um you know which was the case around um some of the public exchange or in response to the book as you guys have mentioned it's like oh the the unending guilt that white people feel i'm like i'm not that's not even I, how about the unending pain and and the consequences of the multi-generational evils that we still refuse especially even as christians to uh, address like can we talk about that and so the degree to which the focus continually whiplashes back to white concerns and to um, the impact or consequence upon white people or white institutions. Mm. Um, again, not surprising, but still alarming. You know, you mentioned that um, racial justice has always been and, and will continue to be a remnant conversation. What, yeah. Why do you think that is? Because I, I, I feel like reading your book, one thing that I took away from it was, you know, the conversation around racial justice is pretty central, I think, to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And mm. why does it take, um, I think we saw maybe mm. for a moment, you know, in 2020 with George Floyd and things like that, you saw a moment in which a lot of churches started to talk about some of these things, but why why is this still a fringe conversation, in your opinion, um, in the church? I think it's because it to take these arguments seriously requires bearing an actual material cost. Hmm. And we are happy to talk about um, adjusting our feelings or even of hanging on to certain convictions in the abstract. We're happy to talk about race insofar as its implications involve relationships, who I hang out with, you know, is our church welcoming to different people? Can we embrace each other? So we're happy to talk about reconciliation, therefore, because mm -hmm. to a certain degree, it doesn't actually entail measurable cost. But when you start talking about theft, or when you just start talking about racism that actually implies loss, mm -hmm. then that's when people really reel back. So even if it's biblical, then you know it's who is my neighbor, <laughs> right? It's how do we maneuver out of the cost of discipleship, which I think it is. I agree. I think this is a this is a Christian matter. This is a, a a matter of of Christian faithfulness, and not just some weird esoteric kind of social agenda out here. This is about some of our deepest, least attended to sins, corporately speaking, um, and that's part of what we're trying to get at by framing racism, morally speaking, as a matter of theft. This is a, a a violation, a, a, a violation of the eighth commandment writ large. Hmm. 
if there if if we rightly describe racism as theft then two things that means something actually was taken away and that also means something was actually profited and here's the thing a lot of people like to talk about racism as if there's a robbery with no robbers that there wasn't actually material benefit to people that were perpetrating these wrongs and so it's like oh well hey we're you know we we talk about racism like it's a natural disaster sympathy and compassion towards african americans or towards whoever right and we're like oh we feel so terribly when the question should be who profited from this hmm. <laughs> who no no not just don't just feel bad who benefited from this because if there was a sinful taking who went home with the booty that's the question right mm -hmm. and if there was loot that was pirated from whole communities over many generations then we need to return it but if we have to return it then that means wait do i get to keep my bike do i get to keep my home what are you saying about the things i have and then it's i built this business i mm -hmm. earned this standard of living i you know the mythology of hard work being the 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 sole driver of our uh present prosperity and um so i think there's a there's a certain um different kind of threat that people feel when you talk about the material cost of actually addressing racism like mm. he healing is such an abstract notion you mm. can almost make that mean anything but when we talk about racial healing as being like oh well it takes time oh it takes relation oh you got to befriend someone different from you as if that's hard i mean it is on some level uh but what if it actually has financial repercussions for you and your family or for your church what if it means prioritizing um more radically how you are distributing or redistributing your resources in your personal life in your community in your church right that and that's when we're really talking and um i think that's what people uh it's just too much it's too hard for people to bear is it more the cost of it where it's too much for them or is it also like the inability to see this idea of like corporate guilt because you know i didn't take that like that yeah. happened, you know what i mean so is it like this more americanized individualism that's making it so challenging to see it this way i mean i i would say that's that's huge that's a big part yeah. of it but my experience and my theology tells me that we use um philosophical and theological argumentation to justify our priors right, right? right. and so yeah. i think the corporate the mm -hmm. corporate responsibility thing and corporate guilt thing and people hedging on that to me is because they anticipate what the implications are going to be if they say this actually applies in this case of racism the reason why i believe that is because americans across the board believe in corporate responsibility corporate guilt and corporate gain when it profits them we we are absolutely on board with this weeness of the american <laughs> church of christians of americans and all that we're like my country tis of thee you know this is our you know we root for the american you know us national team in the world cup we like we'd speak in the first person plural when a gymnastics athlete wins we won you know whatever it's like we're all about the 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 good sides or the 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 beautiful sides of what it means to be a corporate entity what we can't bear are the broken sides of um what it means the cost of what it means to be a corporate entity and so that to me sort of that underlying hypocrisy or inconsistency to me tells me that it's not actually the concept it's not actually the theology it's not actually even though of course on one level it is that we got to work through that and patiently try to help people see these things but what i also want to help them see is that inconsistency and to say what well, is that a real question or are you who is my neighboring this whole conversation you know trying to make it like a technical matter or a theological matter when in fact it's primarily a volitional matter or a moral matter of like i don't want to go there so i'm going to spin whatever i can in order to avoid the implications of reparations mm -hmm. i mean all, all three of us pastor predominantly asian american churches
Yeah. And I think, um, at least, and I can only speak for myself, but my, my guess is the same would be true at Tom and Eugene's it, within their communities. I, I think you kind of touched on this when you said you didn't know exactly. I, I think for a lot of people in our community, they, they don't even know how their voice fits into the conversation. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes th that just leads to avoidance. Like it's easier to not talk about it at all. Um, because they don't maybe feel viscerally impacted by it. You yeah. know, I think uh, all, also all of our congregations are predominantly, you know, middle to upper middle class. So again, even um, like uh, socioeconomic bracket wise, I think right. some of these issues just feel like they're easier to just not touch um, and not talk about how, you know, one, I guess one question is, where does the Asian American voice fit into this conversation, uh, if at all. And then yeah. two, how do you get a con congregation that doesn't want to talk about it or address it or isn't even thinking about it on a regular basis? You know, how do you get a community to start thinking about some of these issues besides just preaching on it from the pulpit all mm. the time? Or maybe, mm. maybe that is that is the answer, but, uh, you know, just you know, a few questions for you there. Yeah, no, that's really good. I mean, I do think just to start at, at, at the end there, practically, I, I mean, preaching matters, I, I do believe, because people, uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, pick up on what our priorities are based upon mm -hmm. what passages and topics we cover in the pulpit, right? Just to illustrate to people this stuff matters. And again, by that, I don't mean preaching necessarily on like, like every day you're preaching on Ephesians 2, right? As if that's the only passage in the Bible that that addresses, you know, interracial conflict and, and reconciliation or whatever. Uh, but rather ourselves as preachers and pastors growing to have lenses, the, the eyes to see hmm. where these themes emerge out of almost every uh, single passage in the Bible. Um, right. And, and because again, not because we're manufacturing that, but because we know this is on the heart of God, cover to cover, Genesis 12, all the way tower of Babel before that Genesis 12, all the way through to revelation 21, uh, constantly, uh, mentioning again and again, um, this, uh, commitment, passion that God has to redeem for himself, uh, people from every tribe, tongue and nation. Right. So I think teaching on it is crucial. I think, Testimony is a big, um, I think, step hmm. for people to actually hear embodied experiences around racism. Um, and that doesn't mean like fishing out, you know, the one African-American in your community, you know, and, and putting the spotlight <laughs> on them every single time. I think that means even letting Asian-Americans in, in a predominantly Asian-American church speak to those things so that it just it normalizes the conversation. Right. So it's like, no, this is who we are um, as people living in a fallen world. And this is this is a trial and this is what it means to walk by faith in it. Right. And so it still can be Christ centered. It still can be richly faith um, sort of filling in the way that it's presented. But the topic that you're addressing is not just, you know, I overcame you know, the pressures that I grew up with to be a doctor. I'm just kidding. Um, but but where the testimony itself can be um, centered around uh, one's uh, cultural identity. So, for example, but I think testimony is a huge thing because it it, it makes it more personal, more near. And, and, and I think the more people's hearts are moved around these conversations and not just left to figuring them out, thinking themselves through the conversation, um, the more I think people's uh, hands and feet are are likely to move. Um, but let me say this. I, I do think, related to what I was just saying, even testimonies from Asian Americans around topics of race, I, I do think it's important uh, for Asian Americans, even for the sake of entering into reparations conversations on behalf of African Americans, for Asian Americans to do their own work in understanding their identity. Because I think if we have uh, an ill-processed sense of self, I think we will enter into a more complex conversation like reparations with a bit of confusion. Hmm. 
not knowing where we fit or, and I think this is, for example, part of what's going on around the affirmative action stuff at Harvard and other places. I, I think there's just a lot of, I mean, it might sound patronizing, but uh, confusion for Asian Americans, not knowing the presenting issues and not knowing where they uh, where they are located in this. So anyway, long story short, just to say, um, there's a lot of work we need to do. We are an unprocessed people mm-hmm. when it comes to racial identity in America. Because we weren't raised to think and talk about this stuff, man. You know, most of our parents were like, what are you talking about? Number one, whoever said we were entitled to anything besides being treated with racism, <laughs> right? They're like, we can't, we're not from here, right? That's our parents. Our parents are like, we're not from here. This is not our home. Our generation is like, I grew up here. I barely speak your language. Like, like I grew up here. This is my home. And so we feel more entitled to um, a certain kind of treatment or a certain place in society and stuff. And our parents are just like, get your head down. Stop rocking the boat. Your goal is to get there, mm-hmm. right? Success or you know, some version of the immigrant story. Your goal is to get there. Don't let these minor things get in the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we process, you know, what some have called minor feelings. Everything feels like a small thing that you should just brush aside. But I think we gotta we gotta be talking through this because we don't even know how to do that um, processing our own Korean American identity, Chinese American identity, you know, Southeast Asian identity, um, all the complexities that come with all that. I I think that's a helpful pivot because uh, that's that's one kind of part I wanted to land the the greater half of the episode with is just kind of like. Let's push into that a little bit more, just even more specific, like Asian American theology and church mm. culture. Mm. Um, I found even I think us starting this podcast was from this confusion that you mentioned. When you look at our books, it's a lot of white guys, you know, um, and hey, God bless Tim Keller. He's helped us a lot. But uh, for a lot of us, we've done church, how mainly the white evangelical, maybe reformed in our circles, churches have done it. And right. us realizing now, especially in 2023 post COVID, like, oh, like I don't, I don't think that's us. Like, and, and what is us? Like that, that, right. like you mentioned, that's the question. I think Jake Hang, his book, The Loneliest Americans, have helped a little bit. Yeah, where yeah. he mentioned, like you mentioned, most speaking from a Korean American family, our goal was to be white adjacent to get mm-hmm. to that C-suite level, and I think that's still baked into us. Yeah. My question is, let's let's focus more even on like Asian American church and theology and and just you know, faith. How do you grow in your faith? when you're confused and i guess the question is like how do you like how is it as even christians we can develop a deeper cultural narrative that can also deepen our faith in christ because i do think those two are tied and i for me i don't know how to do that like that's one point of us starting this podcast and i think for you studying at least reparations at least gives you a step into that thinking so i'm just curious yeah Yeah. what do you think about asian american church theology just in general that's good man i you know honestly for me um understanding African-American history and getting to know from the outside the Black community and um, Black Christian thought has actually helped me understand Mm -hmm. myself, right? Just by way of contrast Mm -hmm. or by way of sort of, you know, negotiating with their narrative and saying, well, this is is similar and this is different and this is how we fit in or this is how it's totally different, whatever. So I do think there's, there's some of that just like, a, a broader kind of reading and understanding helps reflect because I think I, I feel like one of the first things that it's hard to do that's necessary to do is Asian Americans understanding the uniqueness of our experience mm. of actually having some space to reflect. And of course this can only be done in community, right? Whether if it's real life community, talking with other people, um, talking with people inside the community and t- talking with people outside, right? So again, the compare contrast of almost like a comparative cultures kind of approach sure. uh, to these questions. Um, but just understanding, look, we we are different, mm-hmm. and and like and even like second gen, and I don't know all your stories, but even second generation Asian Americans in this that's that's like a non repeatable, unique experience that will never be replicated again, right? Mm. I mean, it's just families come in again, and maybe you could argue every experience is unique because time passes like a river that never stops moving, whatever, right? And the country's always changing. These conversations are always changing. But, you know, just the whole thing, semi-universal experience of like growing up and 
you know, you're in the elevator with people and your parent starts talking to you and, you know, their native tongue in Korean or whatever. And you're kind of sitting there embarrassed, the embarrassment of your family, you yeah. know, that whole experience. And then being sort of outed as different and, you know, not being sure whether or not you should bring kimchi to your, you know, lunch in your lunchbox or not. And, you know, people asking you, uh, you know, where are you from? you know, and not knowing where Korea was, you know, which was true back then, you know, but less so now. But all these things are unique, even in its brokenness and alienation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we always realize how unique it is. And the reason why I'm going down this path of the uniqueness of our experiences, because that's where I think we can start to identify better what is hard and also what are... Um, singular contribution hmm. to the church and to broader society can be right and when we start to see and then again and to your question when you start to be able to apply some of these lenses to scripture and be like oh when when the bible talks about being exiles like we we've got a little insight into that or at least hmm. our families do you know being not from here right like and, and the Bible has that theme so many times over, right? Uh, being immigrants, being outsiders, being refugees, being exiles, being um, you know people in 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 the colon in a colony of heaven, right? Our citizenship is not here, right? I mean, this is all like immigrant speak, but we've almost lost the capacity to raise that up powerfully and say, "Look, y'all need to pay attention." We've got something to say about this. We have lived this, and we're going to bring out the contours and the layers of this experience of the Christian pilgrimage, <laughs> this side of heaven, that y'all won't understand unless we help you, uh, unless we help unpack with this unique lens that we have what the Bible is actually saying. In the same way that African Americans can do it um, out of their own experience, in the same way that others can as well, and so. Um, so I think paying attention and just learning our story better, talking it through and starting to understand how that maps onto Christian theology and and uh, Christian discipleship. I think it, it, it really has a lot of potential and we've barely tapped it. So someone Jason and I spoke with had an interesting observation where he was saying Asians are the only minorities that complain their churches are too Asian, mm. like like black. Hispanic churches, they don't complain that their churches are too black or too Hispanic. And, you know, you've been like in different circles in, with different minority churches. Like, like, why is that? Like, why are Asians so uniquely ashamed of like where they come from versus the other minorities? They seem to be almost like proud and right, right. You know, what's going on there. I, 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 I'm not an expert on it, but I do have theories. <laughs> and I, I think that arises out of our assimilationist instincts that have been trained into us. And what I mean by that, is uh, two, two things. One is that we have been, um, I think because our theological formation has been mostly white-centered and white-adjacent, right? The seminaries that we've been to and the, the, the books that we read and that sort of thing. We have been taught that basically the goal is to get out of homogeneity and get into, if not diversity, then at least whiteness. Right. So you, you actually shouldn't be as Korean as you actually are. So the whole goal is to move out of that. The flip side to that is I think we've also been persuaded that we don't actually have a unique cultural identity that's worth preserving, which is what I was just touching on a second mm -hmm. ago, mm -hmm. meaning we have been told, and I've heard this almost explicitly, the only justification for an Asian American church is language barrier. So the minute that is erased... Mm -hmm. then there's no biblical justification for having a uniquely Asian American or Korean American or Chinese American church. And so second generation and beyond, you are literally an unbiblical church um, <laughs> with, with, with no justification for your existence in the way that your parents' generation actually mm -hmm. had reason for being, right? Mm -hmm. Because of mm -hmm. language difference. And it's just, it's a wad, it's a crock. I mean, right? Um, it, so in other words, getting back to the question, I, I, it, I think it's twofold, but it's really inherently the same thing. This sort of assimilationist set of assumptions that we should be growing away from our Asianness. We should be growing out of our Asianness into question mark, whitehood, or maybe it's 
or maybe it's some vague notion of diversity, but I think it comes with a kind of scorn for Asian centric ministry as being at best JV mm-hmm. at worst unbiblical. Mm-hmm. And so you're just stuck. And so you kind of, I, I think you really do develop this sort of self-loathing. Like, like what I mean by JV is you are almost like this um, underdeveloped ministry mm. by being predominantly Asian. But that if you actually were more mature in your faith or your relationships and convictions, that you actually would look differently. Now, the truth is that can be partly true, but that's true of every church. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't if we apply that standard universally and consistently, then we'd be critiquing everybody. It's like, why is it, people say, well, how come you're a predominantly Asian church? How come you're a predominantly white church? Like who is are people asking that? Well, they're starting to in some places, mm-hmm. right? But um you know, so immaturity can be a cause for unhealthy homogeneity. I think it's important to note that uh, immaturity spiritually can be a cause for closing, uh, you know, a, a reason that churches close their doors, huddle with themselves, be more tribal, culturally speaking, than they are actually pursuing the Great Commission and pursuing Christ's vision for a multi-everything uh, kind of church. Mm. Um, but I do think there's stuff that's embedded in us um, that we really need to unroot and name, right? Even in conversations like this, just to name it. Oh man, it's true. I do kind of live with that assumption. I do have, like, I think you use, use the word embarrassment or shame. Like, yeah, I do feel instinctively, because it's been trained into me, like instinctively, like, oh, we shouldn't be so that, or we ought to have more other kinds of people, whatever. Um, I think it's for real. And I think it's true of a lot of Asian American pastors. Mm. That's good. I'm, uh, a lot of our listeners I know are Asian American pastors. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I would love for you to maybe speak to pastors, leaders of churches specifically. It's a, it's an interesting time because I think, at least in my personal conversations with different pastors, I think on one hand, um, issues around racial justice have at least been elevated a little more than they were maybe um, than when we were growing up or when we... Um, you know, first uh, started ministries. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of anxiety around how to address some of these issues. I think there's pressure, you know, yeah. some, if I address them too much, I'm, are people going to think I'm, I'm a, like a liberal Marxist? Um, if I, you know, don't address it at all, um, you know, like, will, will our church not be relevant? Um, for Gen Gen Z, like I think there are a lot of almost tertiary considerations happening um, where people are feeling this like anxiety to to address the issues. How do I address them? How do I do this with integrity? I don't. I haven't even done the work myself. Right. Um, and so, can you maybe speak to um, pastors, maybe specifically Asian American pastors who are kind of navigating these waters? I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, and I'd and I'd love to hear, you know, even more specifically what what would be helpful to talk about. I mean, because I, I mean, generally, yeah, I agree. Uh, and and even beyond Asian American pastors, pastors in general feel enormous pressure these days to be like racially savvy and mm-hmm. able to talk about all the contours and layers of of these topics. And and the landscape of the conversation has been changing so rapidly too. It's just like there's no way to keep up. You know, I mean, it's it's hard, it's complicated, and it leaves you feeling very vulnerable. And so, first of all, I just want to extend sympathy to fellow ministers that are like, man, what am I going to do? And I feel like I'm, you know, uh, screwed if you do, screwed if you don't, or, you know, however you want to put it. Um, I, I think it is really important not to give in to the pressure, mm-hmm. like the external pressure of keeping people happy uh one because our marching orders have to come from christ and his word and i mean really uh we need to be able to minister with a clear conscience and uh what we cannot do is to live in fear 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a crappy way to live and minister. <laughs> and it's a recipe for hating your job, <laughs> you're hating your calling, right? Um, leading to burnout, all that kind of stuff. But also, um, it's just not actually helpful. Um, mm-hmm. In my experience, uh, if you're just chasing after the demands and cries of people only, it's likely to be an insatiable demand from people. It's like, well, there's just no end if that's just what you're trying to do is appease the people and that sort of thing. So Hmm. starting with personal conviction and uh, acting out of some sense of uh, not just what's in scripture, but also understanding part of what scripture calls us to as ministers is to shepherd the flock. And if your flock is hurting, then there is a responsiveness to the people that's necessary right? As far as what love entails, right? So if like something's blown up and everyone's doubled over because of their sort of, um, you know, racial angst or fear or right, I mean, anti-Asian violence out there and everyone is freaking out and whatever, it's like, no, pastorally, I need to address this just as much as I would address another issue that everyone is thinking about, that everyone is feeling. Yeah, pastor the people, that is a biblical response as well. But a second ago, I was talking more about the just purely fear-based, purely guilt-based um, kind of uh, a, a approach to these things. Um, but I think the other important piece is what you mentioned, which is um, needing to do our own work. I think um, sometimes the danger is to try to quiet our own consciences by how we speak to other people rather than just like, yeah, take some time. You have time. This ain't going away. Sit, reflect, pray, read a lot, talk to people a lot, grow yourself. There are so many resources out there these days to grow on these topics and to learn more um, and to figure out where you stand and know how you want to address it, develop your own language for how you want to describe things. Right. Cause that's part of our, out of our nervousness, we feel like we need to speak out, but we don't even have the vocabulary. And so you just start fumbling through words that you heard on the internet or whatever. Right. Um, or you, so, you know, it said out loud and you're like, Oh yeah, I should sound like him. Um, so I think we need to do our own work and to get serious about that before we actually start to, um, fumble through it with our, our people, not using them as a guinea pig. You use yourself as your guinea pig. And related to that, mm. not going out to the congregation um, with a faster pace or with a, a, a deeper reach than you were willing to do with your own leadership team. That's good. Right. So it has to start there. Yeah. Um, like you shouldn't be saying anything that your team hasn't heard. Um, and that you don't have to some degree shared convictions about this is how we're going to approach this because you don't want to be standing alone anyway, right? You don't want to be addressing things and you're looking around and the rest of your leadership team is like, look, talk to him. I didn't say we had to talk about this. Um, (laughs) So growing together and letting that set the pace of how the church or what the church is ready to hear and how the church is ready to grow. Yeah, that's good. Related question on a bigger, uh, I guess, more 10,000 feet view. Yeah. Uh, with the church as a whole, the, the capital C church, um, I think most denominations, there's a huge divide that is seems to be widening uh, on a daily basis. And I guess for you, one question I have is for the church as a whole, uh, like more of the, sorry, the American evangelical church, yeah. do you foresee that the way out is a schism, that there is almost going to be uh, a breakage, uh, you know, on the lines of racial justice and politics and all that, whatever it may be? Or do you see that, no, the pathway forward should be to continue to try and mend it and to continue to try and keep, I don't know, let's just use the PCA example, like keep that together and not have these split off. I'm always curious too, because even for me, like I don't know what the right pathway to desire is and to work for in the, in the future I, I don't know if that question makes sense or not but. and for the record you're part of you're part of pca right yeah i am so maybe yeah. the general question is like why are you still part of the pca <laughs> and like do you see like hope in changing it from within like yeah you know? yeah yeah let me answer the, the first part of the question from 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 eugene i i don't know actually mm. where we're going i know it's pretty bad out there and and again, it's not even just on race, it's on sexuality, mm-hmm. it's on mm-hmm. a lot of these cultural issues. Um, 
And it's all related. It's not unrelated. It's coming from a common soil, mm-hmm. which to me has everything to do with um, ecclesial identity. To me, it's um, will we see the church primarily as refuge and fortress or will we see the church primarily as a missionary community? Mm-hmm. And that's Leslie Newbegin, right? And that's what I've been thinking about a lot these days, where mm-hmm. it's a, it's an essentially sort of, um, bi- it's an essential bifurcation of, of um, vision for the church and what we're to be all about. Because even these, these social issues, whether it's race or if it's sexuality in the rapidly changing sexual landscape, which, look, it's bonkers out there, right? But the question is, are those being related to primarily as threats to our people, to our children? Or as, yes, difficulties, but also opportunities for what being missionaries in this given context now will entail, right? This is a calling. Oh my gosh, it's bonkers out there. It's like Rome in the first century. Here we go. Let's do it. What is it going to look like for us to mm-hmm. do it? Versus higher walls, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. Uh, stronger fortresses and and so on and so forth. Mm. So that's where I I, I feel like it boils down to to ecclesiology. Um, And as far as practically, will it result in splits? I don't know. I mean, I hope not. I'll I'll say I'll I'll hope not for Jesus's sake, because it's not what he died for. And it's a crappy witness as well. Um, I'll say this. I do believe in the durability and resilience of the middle to find ways always to prioritize unity Mm. and whether rightly or wrongly to negotiate a way to hang together. Mm -hmm. Now, what I just said might be construed cynically because I think we've made mistakes in the past in pursuing unity at all costs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I think it's had good fruit and 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 been good for the church as well because obviously unity matters uh, to Christ, um, and so we ought to pursue that. Um, but there have been times I think in in throughout church history where compromises were made, where things were not addressed, and we found the lowest common denominator to keep us together, and then to slough off these areas of difference. Uh, and um, and then things just disappear for a whole generation or two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I would not be surprised, for example, for there to be some way to find unity and then for concerns around race to slowly subside. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're already seeing that post-George Floyd, right? The retrenchment and the backlash that we're now seeing across the church and across uh, uh, the country um, I think in due time, it, things will flatten out in the middle. People will decide it's not worth pursuing this if it's going to cause trouble. We don't want to divide over this. And so let's find the lowest common denominator in the way that we can get back to racial reconciliation. Not talk about these controversial, controversial matters of justice. Let's talk about how we can get along. Let's, yeah. let's talk about how we can keep our communities together and not always be fighting. And I... I I don't know. I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is I, I have mixed feelings about that without prejudging it. I feel like um, it it expresses an important priority, but it also has done harm in the past. And I'm trying to express both of that. As far as me and the PCA, um, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I've got a Presbyterian soul. I believe uh, convictionally uh, in the core tenets of our, of our faith as Presbyterians. Um, I believe in confessionalism i'm you know an ordained pca minister for a reason and i don't see uh, those main convictions changing um i think the pca right now is uh one of the better messes out there all of it's a mess (laughs) right um none of it's perfect and i'm probably more critical of the pca than i might other places simply because it's mine right right kind of like how you're mad at your parents all the time or whatever right i mean it's like (laughs) (laughs) it's just part of being in a family a denominational family so i get that and i I try to be self-aware of that dynamic right that sort of sober view of even where my critique comes from um but uh yeah Uh, i mean and, and related to that too i mean some of what I've spent energy speaking, writing about 
isn't always welcomed in our denominational space, but I am adamant that what I am saying and how I reason through it theologically is actually a very Presbyterian way of doing it. I mean, even in the book, a lot of the dudes we cited in chapter well, four and five were a bunch of reform guys, a lot of them from across the ocean. Um, but these were, you know, Puritans, Baxter, you know, it was uh, Anglican bishops who were reform guys. Um, it was people that were, uh, are largely embraced in our tradition. So again, like, I, I feel like what I'm doing actually is uh, work that should be and can be received within our communion. And of course, there are other people that advocate for reparations as Christians and approach it in a very different way. And to me, that just shows, yeah, I, I am through and through reasoning as a Presbyterian. Um, and uh, so uh, that's a part of the reason why I'm still in the PCA, because of my appreciation for the resources, history, tradition, way of thinking, um, and ministerial priorities that are reflected in, in our denomination, in our tradition. I know one last one last question for me. Um, do you feel you know those guys who are kind of that side? Well, well, you're making too big of a deal of race. It's all about the gospel. Just you know, just preach the gospel. Prioritize that. Do you or you at a place where you're like, man, I'm not sure if it's worth even engaging those guys anymore because we're just talking past each other? Or do you feel like, no, they're I, I still want to engage them. Like, and if so, like, how do you engage them? Because it just seems like you know you're you guys are almost like talking past one another. And there's no, we're not even on the same page of how to talk and look at the same type of issue the same way. Like, do you, is it worth engaging them still? Or do you just like, man, that's yeah, hard and hard. So we're just seeing it differently. Just not worth debating. I am always willing to engage. And I, I honestly, man, I, I think if anything, I err towards the side of being too hopeful. Mm. I mean, maybe sometimes, I don't know. It's not always a healthy thing. Some of it sometimes is I'm like, too confident in my powers to persuade and that's part of where you know that's where the discouragement or the frustration can come right where i'm like what are you talking about it doesn't get any clearer um <laughs> but but um i i do more and more feel like my energies need to be devoted towards either working with people that want to be persuaded so it doesn't mean they have to be persuaded but they want to actually engage in good faith i'm not going to chase after them though um and i think the reason why i can say that without hostility or arrogance is um because i believe in the body of christ and what i mean by that is some people are called mm. to do that that to work with people at square one or square negative one. Hmm. Um, there were times in my um, pastoral development where I would have said that was part of my calling because I think I'm able to help break things down and explain it and that sort of thing. But I think on this particular issue or issues around race, um, I feel myself shifting more and more upstream or what's my metaphor here, just down the road a little bit more in terms of hmm. people that have some developed conviction around this and are ready to actually move um, rather than argue about whether or not we should move. Um, and so I think, again, where I'm not saying forget them and sort of um, dusting my feet off of them, you know, forever, as much as I'm saying somebody else will be called to, to walk with them mm. and it just might not be me and that's okay. Mm. I still can love them. Uh, but that's not just where my energy needs to be devoted on these issues right now. So I think that's kind of how I'm, I'm working. To, and I think that's true of all of us, mm -hmm. especially as ministry leaders, just knowing where, where mm. in the food chain you feel called to mm -mm. insert yourself or, or speak into some of these issues. And mm -hmm. it's like, some of us are always, you're like, I, I want to walk with people at the one-on-one level with a, you know, with a pastoral burden, you know, forbearing people's misunderstandings. And this is where it's like, no, I want to go 301 and I need to equip people for that next level. Hmm. Um, pastors generally are called to a wider spectrum and generally more upstream, like 101, 201-ish kind of stuff because we're called to 
love people. And, and by the way, let me just insert this real quick. This is the unique burden of being a pastor in addressing these issues. It's easy to be a prophet in the wilderness because you can say whatever you want and there's like no repercussions. You can say whatever you want, piss everybody off and you go home happy, right? Mm. But when you have a flock, mm. when you are covenanted to shepherd a particular people, mm. how they respond to the things you say is your business. That is your calling. And you're called to be uniquely patient as Christ has been patient with it. You're called to persevere with them. You can't cancel them. You know, like you have to find a way to walk together. That doesn't mean everyone has to stay in the same flock or local congregation forever, or every pastor has to be called to the same place forever. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean as long as I'm here, these are my people and I need to like die walking with them mm -hmm. over these things. And that's why it's both uniquely hard <laughs> to work through this stuff as a pastor. Um, but I think also uniquely healthy because there's a, a unique way that it keeps us humble, it keeps us persevering, it keeps us uh, nuanced, it keeps us wise in the way that we address these things. Mm. Um, no, that's that's a fitting way to end. I, I want to first off, Duke, thanks so much for spending yeah. some time with us. We, I, we covered a wide gamut of stuff, but all of it's been, I think I can speak for all three of us, extremely insightful. So I want to thank you for your time. And we, you know, we'd also hope that our listeners can take a look at your book whether you agree with it or not i think like you said it's worth at least processing fully so if you can take a look on amazon or whatever it may be to look up at reparations and give it a look but duke thanks so much for coming on and thanks for being yeah. with us oh thanks for having me guys have a lot of fun